Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, where you can use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, mitigate ransomware, and more. And also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application layering product on the market. And finally, by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. So fair warning, and I'm sure since you work in IT, if you're listening to the podcast, you're fully aware of this, is a very security-heavy week. So most of the news is going to be InfoSec-related, but is applicable to pretty much every IT department's If you support machines, then this is going to be relevant to you. To start off, this is now the fifth episode in which I'm going to talk about the Citrix ADC vulnerability. And and oh boy, did things escalate over this last week. First off, many examples of exploits have been uploaded and shared by those in the community. mdsec.co.uk posted a really great detailed blog post going through the vulnerability and how to exploit it. To summarize, there's a documented way to execute Perl code through an injected template. You can do that and then create an XML file on the template's directory using path traversal. And finally, just browse to the uploaded XML file, which will trigger the template parsing. And that's the exploit. That's the way to execute it. Now, the blog post goes into much more detail and makes it almost easy enough for a noob like me to work with if I wanted to. MDSEC pointed out that Positive Technologies and Paddy Power Betfair were the ones who first reported this vulnerability. Shodan this week also shared several available queries on their awesome service for vulnerable systems. So just a few days ago, they were showing over 125,000 Citrix ADC or Gateway servers that are publicly accessible. Kevin Beaumont took the unusual step of naming this particular vulnerability giving it the name Shitrix. To his credit, he spent part of the week contacting organizations about Shitrix manually for a few days, but said the results were not encouraging and that none of the people or organizations that he contacted apply the mitigation despite being informed. He went on to say that one organization said nobody can access as they have key fobs, so they just don't understand MFA and how that's not going to help them in this case. And then just a couple of days ago is where things crossed into the next level. Bad Packets reported at least two mass scanning events detected from IP addresses in Poland and Germany that were checking for Netscaler gateway servers vulnerable to CVE-2019-19781. The scans were targeting ports 443, 2083, 2087, and 8443. Initially, the first rumblings of active exploits in the wild were related to crypto mining activities, but also MCL in the Netherlands reported an attempted attack on their systems using the vulnerability, which led to them needing to take down their Citrix ADCs, preventing employees from being able to work remotely while this is going on. And as the great Patrick Koble shared, this turns this vulnerability from something nasty 
that you need to mitigate into a clear imminent threat. Through his research, he found in 166 total CVEs, only 7% have returned into exploits in the past 10 years. So while Citrix customers in the past may have gotten lucky by maybe ignoring or not patching when they should have, this time is different. You need to be proactive. You need to take actions. And actually, at this point, it's so far gone, you're not being proactive anymore by mitigating. But you still should. And as I've stated, we're through the looking glass here, people. Mass scans have happened. If you didn't mitigate promptly, chances are your IPs were captured by those doing the scan and possibly much more information gathered too. Unfortunately, if your systems were scanned, it's also possible bad actors may have grabbed credentials through your ns.conf file, which stores credential hashes and which could be used with a combination of reusing authenticated cookies and SSL keys stored on the ADCs. So there's a whole lot of very valuable data for compromising stored on those appliances. Malware Tech shared a Citrix honeypot script that can be used to detect and log scan and exploitation attempts. Rich Warren on Twitter added, for a manual check, you can check the template XML and TTC2 files along with your notice.log file and other rotated logs to try and track down any unwelcome exploiters. So it may give you a way to see if someone has put their grubby little hands into your environment. There's also some similar scripts and examples available that I'll share with this episode. There's a really great curated list on Reddit from Blue Team Sec. So I'm recording this audio on Friday. I believe yesterday on Thursday, Citrix released their own script for checking to ensure if you're mitigated properly or not, or if you've mitigated the vulnerability properly or not. There are also many in the community who have been creating and sharing their own scripts too. Citrix have stated that firmware upgrades are expected to start getting released on the 20th of January, with versions for the various different versions of ADCs coming in the following days. To summarize some of this lengthy update for this week, if you didn't get the mitigation in place promptly, it's possible even if you haven't experienced an attack yet, a bad actor may have already scanned your systems and possibly grabbed your organization's AD credentials. You will want to check to see if this has happened to you. If it has, you'll want to force password resets as soon as possible and possibly revoke and renew the certs that you are using. You'll also want to keep an eye out for your firmware upgrades coming soon and get that in as soon as possible. And unfortunately, Citrix Gateway customers had an extra difficult path to mitigation as the responder feature required for putting the mitigation in place was not available to those just using the gateway. They needed to obtain a temporary license from Citrix support to put in the mitigation. And if that didn't upset Citrix customers enough this week, they got even more bad news. The fix from Citrix with the responder policy does not work on systems with version 12.1.50.28. If that version is in use, you first have to update to the latest 12.1 version, and at this point, there's a decent chance your data has been compromised, so you should really consider running the honeypot created by MalwareTech to ensure that you haven't already been compromised. This whole thing has been a disaster. I know I covered the spraying 
protection that Citrix did when they forced password resets on Citrix ShareFile that annoyed some customers. But at the time, I thought it was commendable because they were trying to protect them. Yes, they were causing a little bit of an annoyance, but it was for a greater good. So in some ways, they've been a great example as a company in, when it comes to security, but this is a major failing. Particularly, I feel really bad for those who may have mitigated pretty promptly, but they were on version 12.1.50.28, and they're now just finding out that, wait, you weren't properly mitigated this entire time, so despite your best efforts, you may have been compromised. It really sucks. And because misery loves company, the U.S. government held a press conference to warn of a serious vulnerability in Windows 10, Server 2016, and 2019. The vulnerability is with the Crypto API, which is susceptible to spoofed code signing certificates to sign a malicious executable and run it to essentially do anything the bad actor wants. And not just that, there are also three RDP exploits that permit remote code execution too. One which is pre-authentication and requires no user interaction, which is pretty dangerous. An attacker could then just install programs, view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights. There was also another similar vulnerability of the gateway and a remote code execution vulnerability in the RDP client itself, which could require some social engineering in order to properly exploit, but should also be patched as soon as possible nonetheless. The RDP vulnerabilities also apply to server 2012 R2. And because these awesome malware tech has already found a working exploit of the gateway vulnerability showing the ability to cause a system crash. Some in the InfoSec community seemed a little divided regarding this crypto API vulnerability, some saying it should be patched immediately, others thinking the threat was relatively minor and could be difficult to exploit on scale. Bleepingcomputer.com have reported that there are now actually exploits for the crypto API vulnerability too, so perhaps the pomp and circumstance around the press conference from the NSA cybersecurity team was justified. Now it's worth noting that exploiting this on scale is still going to be quite difficult. And at the time of this recording, while there are some exploits that have been published, there are no known instances of an exploit being used against organizations at this time. There's a website that you can use if you want to test the crypto API vulnerability. Essentially, if you can open the site without certificate warnings, you'll want to get patching. And that's kind of the good news here for this one. It has already been patched as part of the January Windows updates, which patch 49 vulnerabilities in total. So I know most organizations tend to either stay a month behind on patches or at least a couple of weeks behind on patches and pilot the patches and then wait another week for it to bake. With the particular vulnerabilities this month, it may be worth your while expediting your patching efforts and getting those January patches out uh, to your pilot group as soon as possible. Let it bake for a few days and then patch the rest of your systems before this one blows up and becomes a major issue. The U.S. government has also warned about a zero-day vulnerability in Mozilla Firefox that was reported by Chinese cybersecurity firm Quiho360. This has already been patched, so you'll need to update your Firefox right now to ensure you're secure. 
There was also an interesting evolution for the Ryuk ransomware. There is now a variant that attempts to use Wake on LAN to turn on powered off machines. So when the machine boots, it will attempt to mount to the C dollar of the machine. And if it's successful, it will then encrypt the drive. Pretty scary. Over the last few weeks, we've seen variants of ransomware that could execute in safe mode, and now one that can spread itself to machines that are shut down. I remember the time of WannaCry, hearing about hospitals in the UK where they were shutting down machines and plugging them out. It seems like that step of actually plugging out the machines is pretty wise considering the possibility of using Wake on LAN to boot the machines up and then hit them with the ransomware. And I can't believe I got this far into the episode without saying it, but Windows 7 and Server 2008 R2 are now officially end of life. The January Windows updates are the last you will get for these operating systems. If you don't have extended support, assuming Microsoft don't share future patches for extreme cases like they did for XP, so you won't be getting any more patches. This week, Ed Bott uh, at ZDNet shared steps that you may be able to use to get Windows 10 for free if you still have a valid Windows 7 license. You may recall there was a set period of time in which you could upgrade from Windows 7 to Windows 10 for free. Well, that deadline passed over three years ago, but as it turns out, Microsoft never actually shut down the activation channel for this. If you have some Windows 7 machines still out there, or have relatives still running Windows 7 and want to upgrade them, you should follow the steps laid out by Ed in this great article. I'll share the link with this episode, which is episode 107, on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. Along with the end of life of the older operating systems and the monthly patching, Microsoft launched its brand new Edge browser this week. I was interested to hear from others in the community on what browser they intend to support in 2020. So I put a poll on Twitter asking if people plan to support Chrome, Edge, both, or something else. The results showed 64% plan to support the new Edge in 2020, 68% plan to support Chrome, and 38% will be supporting both. If you follow the podcast regularly, you'll know the updated Edge is available via Windows updates, but it's being rolled out in a staged approach. And while it should keep your settings and update your shortcuts if you already had the preview version installed, some are reporting that they've been losing settings. Though, I must say I haven't seen widespread complaints about this yet, so it could just be a few outliers. One thing I did see coming up quite a bit is that the install has appeared in the incorrect language, which is a bit crappy. The awesome Patch My PC also announced that they've got it already available in their patching service right now. And regarding losing settings, there is a community script which you can use to basically suck out the settings and whatever you have to port over to the new Edge. And I'll share that with this episode too. Chris Jackson from Microsoft also shared documents on managing settings in the new browser, including how to set it as the default browser. Not just on Windows, by the way, but on other operating systems like macOS too. In some other good news, a new version of the MSIX packaging tool is now available, and it supports capturing services. This is a big step up for the product, as that has been one of the black eyes up until now. I'm excited to go back to try out MSIX on even more of my apps now. 
And sticking with app packaging or delivery, VMware released version 4 of app volumes that brings some major changes, largest of which is a great new simplified application management that will allow you to have a base application and then have associated versions. So say you could have a JRE layer and then have programs for version 6 update 39 and another program for version 7 update 221, for example. They've also made changing the template policy files easy through the console now, so no more <laughs> hackery with the file. You'll also be able to deploy version 2.x apps in the new console, and there's the ability to just easily convert the 2.x layers into version 4.x layers, plus more, and it's available right now. CUGC has launched the Stephanie Roper Community Award to recognize outstanding community contributions. If you feel there is someone who deserves the award, you can nominate them right now by emailing their name to hq at mycugc.org and an explanation of why you feel they deserve the award. For my Norwegian friends out there, there's a great tech podcast in your native tongue available at bluescreenbrothers.podbean.com. What a name. What a name. I love Blue Screen Brothers. Much like this podcast, the episodes aren't terribly long, so it's perfect for your morning commute. Last week, I shared a video of a strange issue with a certain type of display. When people would sit down on an office chair or get up off the office chair, it caused the monitors to turn off momentarily. Well, this week, I saw a video showing how to get around those new expensive biometric fingerprint readers they put on doors. And you can do this by exploiting the motion and temperature sensor simply with an aerosol can under the door. It's insane. You want to check out this video, and I'll share it with this episode. VentureBeat.com have updated their browser benchmark testing for the first time in 18 months. And now it includes the brand new Edge and also Brave. I won't spoil it too much by giving the full context of the tests, but I will say that Edge performed very well in their results. You should check it out for yourself. Go-euc.com have updated their Citrix VDA performance analysis to include the brand new 1912 LTSR version, which is very interesting to compare with the 715 LTSR. As always, as this is a community effort, I'm not going to tell you the results here. I just encourage you to check it out if you're an LTSR customer and you're wondering if it's worth the effort to consider upgrading soon. Now some of the best scripts, tricks, and tips. Pretty topical this week, Helga Klein shared the fact that the incredible Shodan offers site subscription for only $49 for lifetime to their monitor service. The monitor service allows you to monitor up to 16 IPs for malware and other vulnerabilities. I noticed Eric from ZenApp Blog signed up this week and put some of his customers' IPs there for monitoring. So for that price... There's amazing value. I myself signed up last year during the EUC Masters Retreat when I heard Patrick Koble talk about and show us how awesome Shodan is. Lawrence Van Duen shared a blog post on how to upgrade from version 2.18 of app volumes to the new 4.0 version that I just mentioned on this episode. Andreas Nick shared a new AppV server reporting tool that looks pretty slick. It pulls information from the server and from the AppV file and shows a summary of the settings. 
This could be cool for those who deployed AppV without the reporting services server, which is how I always deployed 5.x because I didn't like the maintenance of the additional server, and also for what little was gained with the reports, it just wasn't worth it in my opinion. Gunnar Haslinger shared a script for Microsoft Edge, the new Chromium Edge, which can do a lot of things like backup and bring down bookmarks, favorites, modify the first run experience overall by just populating a lot of settings and stuff like that before launch. Um, I alluded to this when I was talking about Edge during the news, and it's this script that I was talking about. Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you all so much for listening.